Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Uh, this week, I'm really pleased to be uh, rejoined by David Thompson, longtime film critic, author of the new biographical dictionary of film uh, and a host of other books, including most recently Acting Naturally, The Magic and Great Performances, uh, which is out now at bookstores everywhere. Check it out. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you buy books. Uh, and I, I strongly recommend it. I had a great deal of fun reading this. Uh, welcome back to the show, Mr. Thompson. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, before we talk about your book, um, I want to start with a, a a slightly more general question, and one that uh, you know is is uh, a little selfish of me to ask because um, I, what I'd like to know is when when you're sitting down to write about a performance or a performer, um, what it is you're trying to express to the reader or or to yourself. Um, and I ask I ask out of curiosity again, kind of selfishly, because I've been writing about film for a fairly long time, not as long as you, but a, a fairly long time. And I'm still terrible at writing about acting. I, I still have trouble trying to trying to grasp that magic of it, the alchemy of it. Um, when you so when you were sitting down to write, what are you looking for? Well, I think in all the writing I do, about film, I'm basically trying to convey what it feels like to be watching it, the screen, but in this case, players, actors on the screen. And I think I'm trying to do what I might do if I came home after meeting someone and my wife said, well, what's he like? And I would sort of begin to describe his appearance, his manner, uh, whether I sort of trusted him, whether I liked him, whether I felt good with him, uh, whether he felt good with me. Uh, I, I think you're getting into a curious relationship which exists between actors who don't know I exist and me who sort of wants to have a fantasy involvement with these people on screen. But it's, it's really founded in a precise reaction to appearance. For instance, I'm looking at you at the moment, and don't let me, I mean, don't be put off by me dragging you in. No, that's fine. And you obviously do this a lot for a living, and you have a composed set mask of a face, which is exactly what I would try to have if I was doing what you're doing. But as I talk to you, I'm maybe getting through some of the professional defenses. Maybe I'm getting closer into you. And it, it's it's that kind of process. Uh, you know, when you sort of are looking at a, a movie and when you say, well, I like the way Gary Cooper looks or I like the way Barbara Stanwyck looks, it, it, it's, it's a matter of saying, why are you saying that? What is it about their looks that you like? Why do you think they have lasted for as long as they did so that millions of strangers felt it was worth watching them and found something of their hopes 
in those people on screen. So, I mean, that's a complicated answer, but, and I've been doing it a long time, so I sort of do it instinctively, mm -hmm. immediately now. But it's very like what would happen if you and I met in a room. You know, we, we, we try to, we try to make an emotional contact with someone. And, and that depends on a lot of very rapid judgments about what your appearance means. What does it mean when your fingers go up? No, don't take them away. Oh. What does it mean when your fingers go up to him and things like that? Do you do that all the time? You probably do, because most of us do what we do physically all the time. And maybe your father did it. I don't know. Sometimes there are links like that. But, um, I mean, this is very complicated, obviously, mm. but I've trying to make it direct. But you asked a tremendous question. How does one describe acting? I would say uh, what I've just said to you is, is my methodology, but the, the practice is doing it day after day for 60 years. Yeah. Which is yeah. what I've been doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and and very successfully. I mean, I, I again, yeah, you you have practically a whole library. You could learn you could learn a whole uh, uh, film course just from reading your your bibliography, uh, which I, I recommend folks do. Um, you know, one of the things uh, in I, I'm I I'm a film critic. I, I write about film mostly, some TV, but through screens. And one of the things that jumps out at me um, while reading your book is that you uh, you you. Uh, attend and write about the stage as well, a, a, a fairly um, large amount. And you know, what, there's there's an interesting part in one of your um, in uh, I, I want to say it's it's towards the end, but uh, the here's a, a line from your book: um, In the nearly two centuries that we've had photography, our discourse with faces uh, has altered dramatically. Uh, or let's just say it has made the face the focus of a story. And that kind of got me thinking about the difference between film, you know, with its with its use of close-ups, with its real tight focus on, on faces, um, and the stage, which I feel like is more of a... Uh, where the voice, I think, is, is slightly more prominent, where, where body language is a little more prominent. Um, how, how does that... Uh, does it do, do you are you looking for different things when you're looking at a stage performance versus a film or or screen performance? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think when you're in the theater, you're really looking at the play. You're looking at something that has been written and constructed and worked over in rehearsal. And even if you've got the best seat in the theater it's actually quite hard to see the faces of the actors in the way that you're absolutely accustomed to doing in the movies. And it's a matter of fact that a, a, a number of great stage actors were not very good on film, whereas there have been a lot of great film actors who've really never been on stage because they were afraid of it, because they they knew instinctively they couldn't do it. They couldn't remember the lines or whatever. Um, movies are about presence more than acting in a certain way. They're about the way a person looks, about how they stand, how they move, how they look at other people. And a lot of that comes down to the face 
you know, the movies are a medium in which we are looking all the time. So it's perfectly natural that the most successful people in movies are very good at looking at other people. Cary Grant, for instance, looked at other people with an extraordinary fond skepticism. It was in. It was a deep expression of his, of his soul, I would say. And I think you can measure a lot of great movie actors in terms of how they look at people. Betty Davis looked at people, even people she was allegedly in love with in the story, looked at them with a certain kind of contempt. <laughs> she had a superiority that it was a little aggressive, but audiences loved it. Mm. Uh, and she was not the most beautiful woman ever on film, but she sort of said, I really don't care. I know I'm beautiful, and you're looking at me. And we did for a long time. So the way people in movies look at other people in movies is very, very important, I think. And you can get a great performance in a movie where a person hardly says a word, whereas on stage... That would be nearly impossible. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, that makes that makes a, a lot of sense. You know, you, you mentioned the look of people, the look of someone. And, you know, one of the um, one of the trickier aspects of writing about acting is how inextricably it really is tied to appearance. Right. I mean, acting is one of the few jobs where we're like explicitly asked to people to, uh, to judge people by how they look. And it's become a much greater problem in recent years because, for instance, it is sometimes taken to be offensive to talk about someone's appearance in that precise and pointed a way. And yet, why are people in movies if it's not because of their appearance, you know? And, yeah. and we, are, we are very used. We had 100 years of people in movies being not just good-looking, but beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, in a way that people in real life don't hope to be. And I think that we're coming to grips with the whole issue that people in movies have been too beautiful in a certain way, and that ordinary people have to live without that, and movies ought to be able to deal with that. So sometimes... I might find myself describing an actress, and I'm 82, remember, but de describing an actress in ways that are today a little offensive mm -hmm. and difficult. So I have to guard against it, and I do my best. But nonetheless, I was born and raised, and I'm still of a mind and spirit that looks at an actress, certainly an actress of a certain age, and sort of says, is she desirable or not? And however inappropriate that may seem to be nowadays, I don't think anyone can deny that the, the movies as a business have always been based upon that. Do you desire the person you're looking at? And it works for men and women and any other variations. We, we, we go to the movies still to look at people we like, to people we might want to be with, we might want to possess, we might want to be in love with, and people we might literally like to be. I mean, people have always gone to the movies 
because those images on screen expressed their inner desires. I know for me, for instance, I was exactly the right age to see James Dean when he mm -hmm. appeared. And I was English and I was in England and Dean seemed a very different kind of kid. But in the way he moved and looked and was shy about being looked at, but greedy to be looked at, he expressed so much that I felt about life altogether. And, and, and you know, depending on what age you were at what time, we all have those people we fell in love with through the movies, and we've learned to be realistic about it. But still, they they ring a chord, and, and they they are very precious. And I'm not sure what age you are, but there will be someone <laughs> in your life who fills that kind of role. Oh, there sure. is for each of Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I can, I, I won't, I won't bore people with my various crushes uh, uh, growing up. But you know, <laughs> so, but no, you know, it's but this this question comes up, and you and you raise it in the book. Uh, you know, the 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 whole kerfuffle around promising young woman uh, and Dennis Harvey of Variety's description of Carrie Mulligan. Um, I mean, I you know, I remember I watched this play out in real time and thought, well, he did he did nothing wrong. Um, but I, I come from kind of an old-fashioned perspective on this. Like, I mean, I what was your as somebody again who has been doing this for a very long time? I, I how did you respond to that uh, that situation? Well, I know Dennis a little bit because he lives in the Bay Area. Uh, I thought uh, I thought what he said was to the point and reasonable. I understand how Carrie Mulligan responded to it, but. I think it's impossible for an actress like Carrie Mulligan or like any others to say that I am simply playing a part and that I am not lending my look, my face, my body, the way I move, all those things to the part. And, you know, it was a big reach for Carrie Mulligan, I think, but I thought she pulled it off wonderfully. And, and, Still, I thought that Dennis Harvey's observation was a, a reasonable one. I didn't, I didn't feel it was offensive, but I'm not sure that she was offended. But I think she was philosophically troubled that her appearance was being called into play when she worked very hard in that film to change her appearance. Totally legitimate, but you know, she she didn't look like the way Carrie Mulligan looked two hours before she came to the set. She worked on herself carefully for that, which is everything we expect a player to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, again, my my main takeaway from that was I I couldn't believe Variety's response more than anything else. I mean, I, I understand. Look, I I have always had I've always been of the opinion that the critic gets his say. If the actor or director or writer wants to respond, I think that's totally fair. Um, but at a certain point, you know, the the publication kind of has to stand by their their man. And they didn't there, I and it was very, it was jarring I, to me. I think it was wrong, a variety, and it's part of the fear that is out there at the moment that we're going to say the wrong thing, and we're going to be crushed. I mean, you know, careers are being broken on things like this, and, and um, it's a very, very tricky issue. There are actors... I talk about Kevin Spacey in, in the book. Now, 
I think Kevin Spacey is a remarkable actor. Uh, I can easily believe that he's done a lot of bad stuff in life and it's come out and it's going to haunt him for the rest of his career. But he's still, in my opinion, a very good actor. And I know historically that if you go back, there have always been a lot of bad people in the movies. And once upon a time, the badness attached to people we now revere was covered up because the profession, the business, thought they should cover such stuff up. Um, Harvey Weinstein is a scoundrel, a rogue, a bad man, but he was a pretty good film producer. And if you're going to face facts, you've got to keep those two things in balance. A lot of bad people have been involved making films. Yeah, well, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I you know, you mentioned Kevin Spacey, and I I had uh, I wrote I wrote down something that you had written uh, in your book here. Um, Isn't it enough that we adore actors and aspire to their light? Do we really have to approve of them too? And that jumped out of me as like kind of the central critical question of our time almost. Um, yeah. And it and it and it really intertwines with something else that you say a little earlier in the book. Uh, when we go to see actors, we have two opposed purposes to step away from ourselves and then to find our reflection in the show. And I, I wonder if part of the reason that people are so upset about people like Spacey, the, you know, the the awful stories of abuse uh, perpetrated by actors or producers. I wonder if part of it is we're afraid of uh, seeing a reflection of ourselves in people we know to be personally monstrous. Um, I, I think it's true. I mean, you know, for a hundred years, people went to the movies to fantasize. That's really what it comes to. And they exercised a lot of dark urges. Why was The Silence of the Lambs such an amazing success? Why did it usher in a whole school of films about serial killers, if not for the fact that the truly horrific aspects of Hannibal Lecter were offset in a really fascinating way by the charm of Anthony Hopkins, who was so amazing in that film. I think what it was doing was saying to us, you used to come to the movies to dream of happiness, true love, so on, being heroic, being brave, so on. But didn't you also come to pretend you were something very bad? And, you know, the way in which cinema has made cult figures of truly appalling villains is, I think, fundamental to what's happened in modern culture. And, and it, it leads you to, it leads you to, to things like Donald Trump, who I think is a very bad man, but a man for whom I think his worst qualities are what appeals so much to the people who follow him and believe him and almost love him. Mm. And this, this is very complicated, but we can't run away from it because the people on screen have a truly extraordinary power over us. 
in your in your book, I believe you compare uh, Donald Trump to Tom Hanks, which is a very funny juxtaposition. Uh, as anybody who you know uh, has has spent time watching Donald Trump and Tom Hanks uh, knows, I mean, just the idea of um, the two of these uh, these people and and how different they appear to us, but we don't really know. We don't. Right. We don't. We don't know what Tom Hanks is really like. Um, we have a, I think we have a better sense of what Donald Trump is like because it, it seems to all be there on the surface. But again, we don't know for sure. He's more of Donald Trump. I mean, Tom Hanks makes maybe two films a year. Uh, there was a period where Donald Trump made a movie every day, virtually. He would be on your camera or on your screen for a couple of hours, nearly every day, if you remember, you know. And God, the energy he had. For doing it, you know, I'm, uh, he he loved doing it. It fulfilled him. So I agree with you. We don't really know which which one to trust the most. Yeah, uh, you know, it's funny. One of one of the things that you say uh, you you wrote about Donald Trump. You mentioned his. I think it was his flagrant dishonesty. Um, and why and that and that is what kind of appeals to people, right? That he's so uh, so heartfelt a liar. Um, and I, I, I do wonder if that's actually true. I mean, I, I wonder if it is. But I, this, I'll, I'll put it this way. One thing that I hear from Trump supporters is he's the only one who tells it how it is. He's the, he's the only one who's telling it how it is, right? And I always sit there and think to myself, how can you actually believe that? But I, I think they do. And I can't tell if it, if it's what you're saying that it's, it's such, it's so dishonest that it's almost honest. Or if it's, you know, real, real truth telling. I just, I can't, I cannot fathom it. I don't understand it. Well, he's, he's consistent. I mean, he stays in character the whole time. And I think he's a man, a figure who has invented this self that really disguises, masks any issues about who he really is. I suspect that he is a man of very little self-awareness because all his energy goes into performing himself. And that is not uncommon with actors. Uh, I've known a lot of actors in different ways over the years, and I think a lot of them have a certain kind of emptiness that is looking for a character to play to fill them up. And I think Trump is like that. And I think Trump found a long time ago this monstrousness that he knew he could do, and it probably stops him having to think, ask all the questions you and I might ask and other people might ask about who we are and whether we're doing a good job of being ourselves. He, he performs himself with such an intensity and constancy that uh, his failings have sort of almost vanished and gone out of sight. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. You know, you you uh, at, at one point in your book, you write about uh, being with Anthony Hopkins and feeling almost studied by him um, as if he was trying to, you know, uh, pick pick mannerisms out of your your behavior for some future characters. That is that part of that. I mean, I don't want I don't want to call Anthony Hopkins empty, but I like that the emptiness that you mentioned oh, trying to. Oh. I mean, you know, he's 85, I think. And he works all the time. Uh, and you know, you you might think, well, he's obviously wealthy. 
He's obviously established. He doesn't really have to prove anything else. But I think my reading of him, what I picked up from him is that if he doesn't have a job to do, a part to play, he'll get restless and he'll get irritable. And in a certain way, he gets dangerous. He's got a, he's got a fierce energy in him, which he gives to many of his characters. But if he's left to his own resources with it, I think he might be a very difficult person to be with. People said about Marlon Brando in his great years that you would sit down to him, you, you would sit down with him, you would talk to him. And after about half an hour, you realize that he was repeating you. He was copying some of your mannerisms. He wasn't doing it maliciously or even playfully. It was some kind of facility, an instinct he had that if you showed him another person, he would start to copy that person. I think a lot of actors are like that. They, 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 they live to pretend they're someone else. And I suspect I, that's a tendency that is going to build and build in human social nature more and more. And it's going to make life difficult, tricky. Well, how do, how do you mean? I mean, do you just mean in terms of, you know, how people interact more through through technology versus in person? I was oh, is... involved in it. But what I'm really talking about is that someone of my generation was sort of raised and educated to the idea that you would be true to yourself. No one really investigated what that meant, but it was a cliche that was there hanging over us. I think more and more the human being is defined not by being true to himself, but by pretending to be other people. And I think it's looking at screens so much of the time that has led us into that. Because we we sort we sort of we see on screens how easily a tiny gesture in ourselves, like the fingers across the mouth, is a way people read us and interpret us. Now you're getting self-conscious about it. See, you mentioned it again. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them up here on my head. <laughs> I uh, well, no, but I, I, I totally understand this. I mean, this is my my big theory of yeah, my big theory. But this is a thing I think about with social media all of the time. Is that none of us, none of us are our true selves on social media. It is a mediated. That's right. Window into what we want people to think about us, which is just again another form of acting. And, and, I mean, think how far in the last, let's say, four years, all of our lives, pretty well all of our lives, have been so rearranged so that meetings, personal meetings, have been transformed by what we're doing now, where we're looking at each other on the screen, and only a very certain partial part of ourselves. That's why I can talk about what you're doing with your hands on your face. And because... What have I got to look at about you? I can't see your legs. I can't see your body. I don't really know what size you are, but I see your face. And this is making the face and what we do with it so much more important. And you almost by consequence have to take responsibility for your face and be in charge of it. And that's happening to all of us. Well, there... 
in in your book, you talk about the evolution of the face and the uh, idea that we, you know, are that we tell more of our stories through our faces now. Yes. Um, I, I wonder. I, I mean, I, I do wonder how much of that is is really new. I mean, you 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 kind of you 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 get at this a little bit in in your book, but I do wonder. Uh, I mean, I feel like we've always judged people by their face, right? Isn't that you know the first way we we get to even even our old ancient ancestors? Obviously, you're correct to a degree. Here's the change from about. 1837 onwards, we began to spend time not just looking at the faces of people we knew, and only people we knew, we began to look at the images of faces we would never meet. You might be able to look at, if you were English, say, you might be able to look at a photograph of Queen Victoria. You would never meet Queen Victoria, but now here she was, a face coming into your life. And that's the only the beginning. Think now of how many hours a day you and I and most people are looking at faces on screen and how much that is changing the way we use our own face. We suddenly realize, I say suddenly, but we realize through the late 19th century and into the age of movie and TV, that people are looking at us they have to. What else have they got? Therefore, it's almost incumbent on me and you to do something with our face. Uh, you have a look of respectful concentration on your face at the moment, and I'm pleased by that. <laughs> but you know you've got that look. You can say, I'm looking naturally, and you are looking naturally, but you're in charge of it and responsible for it too, and you can manipulate it. And you would know, even if I was boring you to death, you would know how to look as if you were concentrating on me. And that is true of all of us too, but it's been enormously intensified by the experience of looking at faces on screens. Well, this is uh, this is all making me very self conscious. It's calling to mind um, uh, the the Steven Soderbergh movie Schizopolis, where Steven Soderbergh plays he plays the main character, and there's there are just scenes where he will sit there and like move his face around in random ways, as yeah. if he is. Yeah, and that is how I feel right now. I feel like just going. Bah, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, we'll see. But I, I'm, I'm gonna I'll try and hold it together here. All right. Um, I, one thing one thing I wanted to I wanted to kind of. Um, uh, dive into is you know look there 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 have been several big revolutions in acting on screen. I mean the first obviously is the the move from silence to sound. That's that's a huge one obviously. But then uh, in the in the fifties and sixties and seventies you have the 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 rise of method right the this the this idea of authenticity as the the most important thing. Um, you know, why, why is it that, that frankly, actors, uh, as well as writers and audiences and critics and everybody else started to put so much emphasis on authenticity as the, the grand idea of acting? Well, I think it's partly because in the years after the second world war, as a culture, we began to realize that the great movies we'd all 
loved and enjoyed so much, they were pretty deceitful. They presented a picture of life that really didn't have a lot in common with the reality we had to live. The pursuit of happiness was almost like an advertisement imposed upon the nature of real, awkward, untidy life. And I think people rebelled against it. I think people felt there was a need for a new sort of reality and a respect for realism. And the Actors Studio, which was formed in 1947, uh, was a very deliberate, concerted attempt in America and based upon the idea of an American style of acting, although it had a big influence from Russia originally, but the, that way of acting would be truthful, with a capital T, in a way that films had not been before. And so you got a great age of acting. Uh, Montgomery Clift, Dean, Brando, Steiger, so on and so forth. Largely men. And... We loved them. Audiences loved them, uh, and, and it was very easy to accept this new reality. Um, you take a film like On the Waterfront. There is a great scene where Brando's character is sort of trying to ingratiate himself with the Eva Marie Saint character, and he takes her gloves, if you remember the scene, and he sort of plays with them on his own hand. Well... Trust me, when that film opened, 1954, uh, I felt, and millions felt, oh my God, what a what a glimpse of immediacy and intimacy! What an incredible thing the character is doing. You look at that scene now, and you say, what a superb piece of work the actor is doing. So that. You know, all of these new realisms, they get dated and they and they become a little more study in pretending than just in being real. But everything we call the method, the actor studio, was a major force in American life and in international life too. And, and, and we're still with that kind of acting. We have actors like De Niro, Pacino still. Uh, who were actor studio people. Mm -hmm. So it, it had a profound effect. It, mm -hmm. You can trace it in politics too. If you look at Dwight Eisenhower on film, you say, how did a man as dull and plain and as inept with the camera as he is come to be president? The answer is because people trusted him before they even saw him on camera because of what he'd done in the war. From Kennedy onwards, you have presidents who you cannot really begin to describe and think of without thinking of them in terms of performance on camera. And you couldn't have a presidential candidate now the party simply would not tolerate it. The public wouldn't tolerate it. You couldn't have someone like that who is not brilliant on camera. And, you know, whatever you think about Donald Trump, he is brilliant on camera. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, this is the story of the 2016 election, how much free media he got Absolutely. just by... Absolutely. 
yeah. being on TV. And remember that way in the debate with Clinton, he sort of appeared behind her. <laughs> yes. over. That was he was he was directing that event. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it, it it is a movie villain sort of thing where he just you know the the yeah. shadow behind the. Right. the uh, uh, you know, let me um one one final question here. Uh, the in in your book you write about uh basically the the fact of movie stardom. Here's here's what you what you write. Uh, in its essence, it is implacably authoritarian and hierarchical. The medium craves stars; it may not exist without them. Um, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting key movie business ideas of our age, right? Is that the star, we're almost in a post-star age, right? We 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 are moving beyond the Julia Roberts and the Cary Grant. Now it's Batman and yep. Superman and, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? To, to give one giant example. Um, can, do you think, do you think there is a future in movies without the uh, the the grand presence of actor stars as opposed to IP stars. Well, I, I'm I'm gloomy about this. I I think theatrical movies, such as I grew up loving, and you too, I'm sure. Um, I think it's fading away, and and I'm not entirely sure what will come in its place. But I think you're going to get a lot more of what I will call ordinary people uh, in the image, and even artificial people. Uh, you know, the computer is capable now of making a new Humphrey Bogart film. You take all the Bogart imagery, you put it in your computer, you program it to be a new character, and they can do that. And the potential for that in politics, for instance, is amazing. And I think it's an issue we're going to have to face. And it's it's pretty frightening, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I don't think we're going to have movie stars in, in the way we used to. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I do wonder, I, you mentioned Bogart or other, you know, kind of uh, CGI generated right. stars. And I do wonder if we, we will just end up seeing an almost stasis where we just have endlessly recycling, you know, a new Marilyn Monroe movie, a new Harrison right. Ford movie after, you know, after he passes on. Um, could easily happen. Easily you know. turn out that way. No. I always like to end uh, this show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about your book, about the world of acting, uh, anything uh, well, in, in the world right. of how my face looks right now. I don't, you know, We've had a good conversation, I think. So no, I I don't have any any complaints at all. But I'll ask you. Let's see how whether we agree. Who's going to win the Oscar for Best Actor? Oh, best oh. Um, boy. Well, I'll tell you who I would I want to win. I want Colin Farrell to win for Banshees of Inisherin, which a performance I loved. Absolutely agree. Just a mournful, a mournful face for a, a perfect. But I don't know who do you think will who do you think will win? I think Colin Farrell will win. Okay. I think. I think probably Kate Blanchett will win as actress, but I would vote for Andrea Riseborough. Well, I there is much controversy about this at the moment, as we as we know. Okay. Um, 
I, 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 you know, I still have not seen Two Leslie. I'm still trying to get it into the uh, into the rotation. It's the only one of the uh, well, nominated performances I have not watched yet. Great film, but it's an amazing performance. Well, she's wonderful. I mean, nomination. You know, she, she is. She's. You know, we mentioned. We mentioned. Uh, actors who bring their look to the to the screen, but she is one who is different in every Absolutely. every movie, every performance. Yeah, yeah. I think you'll like it when you see. Okay, it. I got. I'm gonna. It's on my. It's on my two watch list. Hopefully, I can get to it this this weekend. Um, oh. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, so, uh, thank you again, uh, Mr. Thompson. The the name of the book is Acting Naturally: uh, The Magic and Great Performances. David Thompson. Uh, go well, check it out. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Again, anywhere books are sold. Um, uh, it's it's you'll you'll have a you'll have a, a blast reading it, um, and hopefully learn something. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at the Bulwark, and I'll be back next week with another episode. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.